Hey there, this is Dr. Erin Wiseman. I'm a fellow Dr. Podcast Network member, life coach, and mama three. I kick butt, I take names, and I help other high-achieving people do the exact same. And today, I want to invite you over to my podcast, Dr. Me First. It's well over 300 episodes, and each one is filled with inspiration and advice from amazing guests. So grab your wife, your mom, your sister, your best friend, and come tune in as we explore what it means to be a woman in medicine and a woman in this world. Because this podcast is a dose of everything that I needed when I was burned out, exhausted, and ready to quit it all. At the end of the day, I do this to help you feel more connected to yourself and to connect with others. I love to end my show with a kick of encouragement, so here's my favorite tagline. Your life, your calling, your pulse matters. See you over at Dr. Me First. So welcome to another episode of the Medical Liability Minute, where we speak for more than a minute. I'm your host, uh, CEO and founder of Medical Justice, Jeff Siegel. I'm joined today by our fearless general counsel, Mike Sakopoulos. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Excellent. So today we're going to continue our series called Ripped from the Headlines, where we try and learn lessons of how people were in the crosshairs, medical legally, lessons learned, and what we can do to avoid their particular fate. Sometimes it's a close call. Sometimes it's obvious what should not have been done. Um, in my file cabinet, I put this under this case today under the category, hey, this was obvious. What were they thinking? Um, title being padding test results results in a $3.03 million verdict. Again, padding test results turned into a $3.03 million verdict. So what happened? Here, a nine-year-old was referred to a neurologist to evaluate headaches. The doctor asked the uh, mom if the patient or child often daydreamed. Mom said yes. Well, I guess almost every mom would say yes. The neurologist then performed an EEG and diagnosed the child with epilepsy. He prescribed anti-epileptic medications, which had some challenging side effects. Um, Apparently, the side, effect, side effects caused others at the school to tease her and isolate her. Not exactly sure what types of um, side effects they were, but, you know, ultimately, she was bullied. So the mom alleged the neurologist misdiagnosed uh, the patient and gave her medication she did not need. The plaintiff also alleged the neurologist had done the same thing over the years to other patients, actually 260 children, all with the same scenario, asking the same question about daydreaming. Uh, behind the scenes, and this is the type of thing that a clever um, plaintiff attorney will identify with, with discovery, um, apparently the neurologist had an incentive contract with a hospital, which was another defendant uh, in this case, where um, he received payment for every EEG he performed. So the neurologist performed nine, nine EEGs on the plaintiff, all reported as abnormal, and the experts apparently interpreted these EEGs as normal. So this comes down to uh, expert evaluation, but if, if, a, if a jury interprets the EEG, if the jury interprets that 
the experts are stating that the EG was normal and the defendant is stating it is abnormal, then certainly you have a challenge there. And this turned into a $3 million uh, verdict. So this is interesting. It's an interesting case. This is, um, um, this is a misdiagnosis case, but it's considered an intentional uh, misdiagnosing. And I, I will say that intentional misdiagnosing creates not only civil liability, but potential criminal liability, as well as regulatory liability, meaning you can lo lose your license. And I'm reminded of this horrific case in 2015, where a Detroit physician named Dr. Fada, that spelled F as in Frank, A-T-A, gave chemotherapy to patients who did not need chemotherapy, uh, including some without a diagnosis of cancer. So some patients had uh, did have a diagnosis of cancer, but did not need chemotherapy, or at least this type of chemotherapy. And apparently some of the patients did not even have a diagnosis of cancer, yet he was giving them chemotherapy. So Dr. Fada pled guilty. Just by, by way of background, he told some patients they had multiple myeloma when he knew they did not. Uh, he received a prison sentence of 45 years. It was 50 Good. years. Yeah, I know, exactly. Yeah. Some will argue maybe that wasn't enough. He was 50 years old at the time of sentencing, so you can do the math. And um, in terms of what he pled guilty to is 13 counts of Medicare fraud, one count of conspiracy to pay or receive kickbacks, and two counts of money laundering. He was prosecuted in a federal court, so he'll ultimately spend time in a federal uh, prison. Um, the prosecutors called it, and I'm quoting here, the most egregious fraudster in the history of the country. Now, there's got to be a lot of stiff competition for for that award, don't you think? I would think so, unfortunately. Yeah. That's right. And again, this is the prosecutor speaking to Dr. Fata. Um, they believe he, in his mind, patients were not people, they were profit centers. Uh, just, just horrible. So Fata forfeited $17 million he collected from Medicare and private insurance companies. Apparently, 553 patients received medically unnecessary infusions or injections. This is what the prosecutor stated. The hematologist-oncologist, Dr. Fada, gave an emotional apology in court saying he was ashamed of his actions. And I'm quoting here, he said, I violated the Hippocratic Oath and violated the trust of my patients. Uh, Fada said, according to a CNN affiliate, I do not know how I heal a wound. I do not know how to express the sorrow and the shame. Um, but to the dozens of victims who filed um, a civil case in the uh, district court, uh, uh, Eastern District of Michigan, um, they said his apology didn't matter. Many will live with the effects uh, of his, at times, unnecessary treatment for the rest of their lives. Again, I'm quoting Geraldine Parkin, the wife of one former patient, said in court, Many were tortured until their last breaths. And before being sentenced, Fata turned to face those who were at his sentencing and uh, apologized. Um, the quest for power is self-destructive, he said. They came to me seeking compassion and care. And care. I failed. Yes, I failed. Um, now that some of his former patients had a chance to file claims and be awarded some of the funds he collected from Medicare and insurance companies, uh, even though he was 
uh, given, I believe, 45 uh, years in prison. He's expected to serve at least four, uh, 34 years of that sentence, uh, possibly or probably at a low security prison uh, in uh, Michigan, a federal uh, prison. So you've got a number of issues here. We've brought up two cases. One was a civil case related to misdiagnosis and potentially an intentional misdiagnosis with a neurologist who had an incentive contract with a hospital, namely the more procedures you do, the more you get paid. Um, I cannot believe that that was a contract in writing, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. The other one was a criminal case related to, um, in, again, intentional misdiagnosis and giving patients a false diagnosis, um, enabling the physician to um, to provide chemotherapy for which the doctor was uh, handsomely compensated uh, to the tune of uh, many millions of dollars um, to patients that may have had a diagnosis of cancer but did not need chemotherapy, but also including patients who didn't even have a diagnosis of cancer. I don't know how this was uncovered, but ultimately um, it's the type of thing where you just wonder how um, you know, they were so emboldened that um, they went for so long without being caught. I mean, it just boggles uh, the mind. But why don't we start off with the, the simpler case, which is um, a doctor who potentially has an incentive contract with a facility. The more you do have a procedure, the more we will pay you. Now, this isn't, I guess the question is, um, does this violate various statutes or regulations, starting with anti-kickbacks. Uh, it wants to jump right in, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it does, because um, one person's commission is another person's kickback, right? I mean, what mm -hmm. we're doing is we're compensating uh, for utilization of, uh, of certain uh, uh, services. Um, can't do that. There's stark laws, which I think most of our audience is probably uh, familiar with that say that that is um, not legal. And there are certainly some some ethical issues that, that flow into this. So beyond uh, patients bringing uh, claims, you also have to contend with uh, the federal government bringing uh, claims as well. Yeah, so if we think about anti-kickback, you have both federal anti-kickback laws as well as state anti-kickback laws. These are criminal statutes where the government has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you violated the law. So you have to demonstrate intent that you intended to violate the law and often comes down to um, receiving a financial incentive as a quid pro quo for a referral. Now, with the federal anti-kickback laws, it generally relates to federal payer programs. So the entity that's being defrauded, if you will, would be Medicare, Medicaid, Champus, you know, the federal payer programs. But <laughs> I know most states, if not every state, have their equivalent state anti-kickback uh, laws, which mirror the federal rules in almost every way. Um, but it expands on this to include all insurance. So if you're defrauding a regular insurance company, not a federal payer, but something like Blue Cross, Aetna, United Health, and it's a quid pro quo based on um, 
a, a referral to uh, an incentive to refer. And what, what I'll, I'll describe what I mean by quid pro quo in just a minute. And that's that puts you in the crosshairs for criminal liability. So when it's a criminal case, the people who are propelling this are prosecutors. It's the district attorney, prosecuting attorney, uh, state attorney general, the Department of Justice. Um, these are the entities that are making the case. And they can certainly impose criminal fines. They can also take away your freedom. At the very least, you're looking at a, a pretty difficult fight. If you're fighting the, you know, the Federal Department of Justice and their attorneys, it's likely because they believe you've taken a lot of money away from them, meaning that there's a lot of money to be had, and they will fight tooth and nail to achieve justice. Now, how do they generally learn about these types of cases? Frequently, there's a whistleblower, somebody who has inside information. Um, and it could be that they're a former employee, now disgruntled. It could be a jealous competitor who sees uh, the doctor making money hand over fist and knows enough uh, to be dangerous. But they will bring this information uh, to, in this case, the Department of Justice, if it's a federal anti-kickback and try to lay out their facts on the table. So why would somebody do that um, other than the psychic joy of uh, seeing someone who caused them pain, you caused them pain? Why would they do that? Well, because there's money to be had. There's something called uh, KETAM litigation where you step in the shoes of the federal government and prosecute a case, or if the federal government takes it over, you stand to potentially collect a commission, if you will, for whatever the government recovers. Mike, why don't you talk a little bit about KETAM lawsuits and how far back they go, because I know you're a Civil War buff. <laughs> well, <laughs> they, they do go back a ways. But the, the idea is that you've brought a issue of, um, uh, of, of fraud to the government's yep. attention. The government's being uh, defrauded is the idea or taken advantage of. Uh, illegally, and that if you propel this forward and you identify it and assist with uh, the case, that then you should get some of the rewards um, that that come out of it. Now, mm -hmm. there is no slight irony that you get to take a cut of somebody who was taking a cut of something that they were not allowed to, but. Look, that's just the way the law the law works. This goes back, and the whole idea is to kind of deputize or compensate people for the common good, to give people an incentive to say, "Hey, look, this isn't right over here, and we're losing a lot of, of federal dollars because of it." And so that's the the general idea of the of the law and the compensation, and it can be significant upwards of 25% oftentimes um, of, of compensation on these. And if you want to be um, really disturbed and not sleep some evening, you can always uh, do a Google search of this and you will see that there is a whole industry of law firms out there uh, trying to uh, solicit these kind of, of cases, whistleblower uh, cases. And so in my experience, what happens is it's a disgruntled employee who has uh, raised his or her hand before and said, hey, I don't think this is right, and they have been um, ignored. 
And so the, the first stop is very rarely uh, the attorney's office. It's usually someone saying within the organization, is this right? Or I don't think this is right. And then being summarily ignored. So then find an outlet elsewhere. Uh, yeah. And they often, uh, these individuals are not only ignored, they're often fired. So um, these are, they may be, I don't know if calling them self-righteous is appropriate or not. I mean, they've identified wrongdoing. They bring it to their superiors, potentially expecting that the the wrong would be righted. And instead of seeing, instead of instead of rewarding them for identifying the potential problem, they're given uh, the uh, a ticket to uh, to leave the institution. They're fired and shamed. And what do these people do? Well, they take that that information to um, either the federal government directly, or they, or sometimes state government, if it's based on defrauding um, a, a private healthcare company, um, or they take it to a law firm to get evaluated as a whistleblower suit. It's not necessary that the government get involved in terms of. Um, using their own personnel to prosecute these cases. Citizens can stand in the shoes of the government, but but frequently the government will want to get involved, particularly if they believe that um, there's money to be had because they ultimately would collect the lion's share of this and then pay the finder's fee if they're successful. I know for, for people who have pondered uh, these types of KETAM, and it, it's spelled Q-U-I, New word T-A-M, is that right? I believe so. Okay. For those who have pondered this, it's a long haul. If you're trying to sue a giant healthcare institution, they generally will defend and go to the mat. So you're looking at years of litigation. For those who believe that this is the uh, ticket uh, to the city of gold and it's going to happen in a matter of weeks, the the law firm that you bring this to will quickly disabuse you of that notion. In addition, they will tell you that it's a high risk maneuver unless it is a complete and total slam dunk and you've got smoking guns left and right. Um, in one sense, you may be committing professional suicide. Uh, makes it hard for you to get if you basically have been kicked out. Now you're filing a key tam lawsuit alleging some type of wrongdoing, unless it's obvious what the wrongdoing was. Put a different way, if it's a gray zone, a legitimate gray zone dispute, you may yourself become um, difficult to hire, maybe difficult for somebody to go along uh, with you down the road. I don't think people necessarily think through the downside, the professional risk to being a whistleblower. I certainly give whistleblowers credit for stepping up when there's obvious wrongdoing. Because if you look at these cases right here that we just talked about, namely the neurologist who is performing EEGs that he read out as being abnormal when, um, if I'm reading this correctly, most neurologists would have called this a normal, um, a normal EEG, yet the doctor is being paid per EEG that was, you know, that was being done. And in the even more egregious case, you had uh, Medicare uh, being billed inappropriately for the oncologist to deliver chemotherapy when the patients did not need chemotherapy, or even more egregiously, 
with some patients, they didn't even have a diagnosis of cancer at all. I mean, typically when this is going on and you're dealing with uh, scores, if not hundreds of patients, there are people who see what you're doing <laughs> and are able to identify what's going on. And it always bo it boggles my mind that they're able to get away with these schemes for so long undetected. And it may be, it just emboldens uh, the doctors and I'll, I'll never get caught. Nobody knows what I'm doing. Um, but I, I can tell you that doctors caught in the crosshairs for a anti-kickback, uh, being caught in the crosshairs for anti-kickback litigation uh, or, um, you know, money laundering or Medicare fraud. Uh, you're looking at a very challenging environment for A, being able to keep your freedom, B, being able to keep your license, and C, being able to keep your money. So let's assume for the moment that you are um, made to pay a giant fine. You've got to give all this money back to Medicare, and then Medicare labels you as an individual that's committed Medicare fraud. What are the domino effects associated with that related to the private insurance carriers, license, et cetera. Mike, why don't you um, pick up so, that baton there? So you yeah. would be, be put on an excluded list, which means you can't provide services to Medicare or Medicaid uh, patients. You very well will have medical licensing board issues. You will be dropped by other third-party uh, payers, private payers will uh, also say that if you've had this, that's a violation of your contractual relationship and you're no longer um, a part of their, their network. And you're going to have licensing uh, problems if you don't have criminal problems on top of it. It is uh, a quick downroll, a spiral when this, uh, this starts. And one thing leads into the next, into the next, and it compounds very uh, quickly. For as long as it takes for some of these things to... Um, to manifest and for someone to get caught, the consequences of being caught typically are very quick in my in my experience. Yeah, it's um, you face criminal liability, which means are you going to stay in prison, out of prison, or even if you don't have to go to prison, you may have a probationary uh, period. Then your license is at risk uh, because the question is being asked: Have you committed? Have you been uh, convicted or found? Uh, guilty related to any type of fraud with federal uh, or state um, insurance program. So you've got licensing issues. And remember, licensing issues never stay put in one state. If you have licenses in four states, it never stays in one state, um, assuming that one state takes action against your license and imposes some type of discipline. You generally have an affirmative duty to notify the other states of that problem. Now they they and they likely will impose some type of parallel discipline. So if one state um, puts a restriction, maybe they don't even put a restriction on your license, but they discipline you with a letter of reprimand. Uh, you have an affirmative duty to notify the other states within X number of days. Every state treats this differently. Some states you don't have an affirmative duty, but they'll find out about it. And then they'll start their own disciplinary process. So it's it's rare for individuals who have licenses in multiple states to see a problem confined to one state. And then you have your DEA license. You know, if you have an issue 
related to fraud? Does it put your DEA license at risk? And for many practices, i.e. a surgeon, you often need a DEA license to be able to perform uh, surgery. I mean, what are you going to give your patients post-op, even if, even if just for a week, if you can't prescribe any types of narcotics for, uh, for, uh, to manage pain? And private insurance companies, you know, above and beyond Medicare, Medicaid, Champus, once private insurance companies find out that needs to be addressed, oh, but wait, there's more. How about hospital credentialing committees where um, you're, you know, you need access to uh, a large facility for both referrals as well as the ability to, to bring your patients, the operating suites or the intensive care units. I think the point I'm trying to make is that once you get into this um, this challenge with criminal prosecution, unless you win, unless you get a win, um, you may lose everything. Not just your, I mean, you may maintain your freedom, but you may lose money. You may lose your ability to um, uh, to to make a living. So this is um, this is what, something that people talk need to about pay the allegation to. alone, right? Because what I, I would like to think that our audience is, is honest and would not be committing these kind of frauds, but these allegations could be raised against anyone. And the mm -hmm. consequences you're describing uh, are, are very real and somebody's gonna have to uh, deal with things. So what advice would you give if someone, knowing that they haven't done anything wrong, but get an allegation of an investigation on some kind of uh, kickback or, or false claims act? Uh, what would you suggest? By the end of the day that there's an allegation of any type of criminal event or, um, and we'll use anti-kickback, by the end of the day, you should have consult, you should have identified and had an initial consultation with an attorney who is very well versed and experienced in defending such matters. The sun should not set on your office until you've made that telephone call. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait until next week. You you need to move on this rapidly. You need to start collecting the data um, or the documentation to support your side of uh, the argument, your defense. And if if you believe there are some weak spots where you're vulnerable, let your attorney know. Your attorney needs to be able to fully and completely defend you. That means explaining where the warts are. But I will tell you from the very beginning, um, even before you get into that situation where there's an allegation of anti-kickback, I would say consult with an experienced healthcare attorney if you are even put at risk for anti-kickback. So let me give this color. If you get into a marketing agreement, I'll say with a hospital or um, any other healthcare uh, institution, where there's a whiff of some type of payment in exchange either explicitly or implicitly for referrals, meaning you bring my business, you bring your business to our hospital and we'll give you uh, a free office or we'll give you um, free services and we'll pay you by, by some um, ratio related, to, or not ratio, but some, um, some calculation related to how much business you bring to the hospital. The more business you bring, the more you're going to get paid. I mean, I can understand the attraction behind signing such an agreement, but 
these are formulas for disaster. There are incentive programs that do exist that are illegal, that pass muster, but it should be reviewed by experienced healthcare attorney who understands healthcare marketing, who understands how to keep you out of the crosshairs. Because by the time allegations are filed, it's a little late to be going over that initial document and the the flow of cash from the facility to your bank account. I mean, there have been a number of high profile convictions over the past couple of years related to some form of anti uh, kickback, and some of them were even blessed by experienced healthcare attorneys. Um, I think the challenge was the amount of money being transferred was so high, and and there seemed to be a wink, wink. Um, you just bring your business to our hospital, and we've got it papered over properly, meaning that it's form over substance. And as with the IRS, as goes anti-kickback, the document can't just um, look pretty. It has to actually represent reality. And the government, both federal and state governments, frown frown upon um, pay for referral. They just do. To give some context for this, the annually, the Office of Inspector General publishes the amount of money that they recover from what they believe are uh, frauds, a lot of it in the kickback arena or fraudulent claims. Uh, that number is always, if you re restrict it just to healthcare, because we can have government fraud with military or whatnot, but if we're just talking about healthcare, um, annually, well over $2 billion recovered every year, some some years uh, north of three and $4 billion. So there are whole groups of people um, buildings full of lawyers uh, going after healthcare entities for these type of act activities. And you need to be aware there is uh, definitely uh, risk if you are involved in this type of behavior. All right. So you're closing out today by being Mary Sunshine here, correct? That, that's that's me. Uh, if you have any kind of worry immediately, it's a red light crisis. Uh, go to DEFCON uh, 1 on this. All right. Thanks for joining us today. We'll catch you on our next edition of the Medical Liability Minute. Bye-bye. Before we end, don't forget to hang out with our friend, Dr. Aaron Wiseman, over at Dr. Me First on your favorite podcast app, Dr. Me First. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice, and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I N 
infoNews at medicaljustice.com. That's infoNews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.